Joe Greenwood, hope you're all doing well this week. Um, I'm doing well, thank you for asking. Uh, I'm a little bit tired, because it's been WrestleMania week. I've been staying up really late watching professional wrestling. Which is great, obviously. Anyway, enough of that. Let's get into this week's episode. Uh, Last week was about... What was last week about? American Road Movies. Which uh, was good. Uh, This week, what I thought I'd do is look at maybe the best contemporary American filmmaker, in my mind. Someone who has clear phases in his work as well. And who has a very clear development of their work into something deeper and more interesting in my mind. And that's Paul Thomas Anderson. So, enough of the foreplay. Let's get straight into it and start talking about Paul Thomas Anderson. Thomas Anderson was a bit of a prodigy when it came to filmmaking. Um, he made two significant short films uh, before going on to make his feature film debut, the first of which was the Dirk Diggler story, which was a 30-minute short film about a um, porn actor in the San Fernando Valley in the 1980s that had this sort of like zelig quality to it. It was a a um, mockumentary-style film, uh, which was a story that he went back to uh, later, which we'll get to in a minute. And then the other one was significant. It was uh, co- it was called Coffee and Cigarettes, 
and inside Philip Baker Hall as this sort of like slightly dis- dishevelled father figure for this wing on this on his surrogate son to sort of come meet him. And what was interesting about that was that Paul Thomas Anderson made that film after dropping out of um, NYU Film School, took that money and made that short film, worked with Philip Baker Hall, which then allowed him to go on to work with Philip Baker Hall then on his debut film, which was released as Hard Eight, but was uh, always in Anderson's mind, called Sydney, which is uh, an interesting film for a number of reasons. It follows a down-on-his-luck sort of gambler who meets uh, Philip Baker Hall's character called Sydney, who then builds him up and sort of helps him develop a life, only for him to then get into further trouble after he meets a girl who's played by Gwyneth Paltrow, playing the hooker with the half gold role, um, taken lifted straight from classic film noir. That's something which is quite evident from his work is that Anderson's clearly a fan of classic Hollywood cinema. There's a lot of very sort of that classic, robust filmmaking that you'd get from then, from that era. What's interesting about that film and what's interesting about really all of his films is that they're about people who are sort of lost in a lot of ways or they're trying to get to a place where they can finally be the person they want to be. What's interesting about uh, Sydney is that it's set in Reno, Nevada, which is the, of course, the the poorer version of um, Las Vegas, the less glamorous one. And it's strange that these people sort of make their home there when the slightly more glitzy and glamorous sort of version is waiting for you. But maybe it's that idea of just wanting to be a big fish in a small pond, which is more attractive to Philip Baker Hall's character. Coming out again, Ben 11 after Come on, old time, you gonna join us here, my friend? Come on. I don't wait for old people, I don't wait for old <laughs> All right, here we go. Let's see those. Here we go. Eight easy eight. We're out on a point of eight. Better back hard. Okay, I'm gonna light a cigarette now, old timer. See, the thing is, I like you, and I'm gonna light a cigarette. And I'm gonna let you have this time to place your bet before I finish lighting this cigarette. And then when I finish lighting, I'm just gonna roll. Fuck you. <laughs> You're laughing at that? I just said fuck you to the man. Jesus Christ. <laughs> The way you look, I think you know what I'm saying, old-timer. I think you do. Jesus Christ, why don't you have some fun? Fun, fun. <laughs> All right, shaka-laka-doo. Shaka-laka-dooby-dooby-doo. Shaka-laka-doo. You got a little bit more there. Coming in there, baby. Shaka-laka-doo, baby. I'm almost lighting it, baby. I'm going to light the cigarette, old-timer. What are you going to do? $2,000 heartache. Going on to his second film, Boogie Nights, which is the feature-length version of his original short film, the Dirk Diggler story. It follows Dirk Diggler, played by Mark Wahlberg, young man who gets into the porn industry, who then, who hasn't got a great family life, but finds a surrogate family waiting for him in that industry. 
unlike the short film, it's not a mockumentary, it's a genuine fiction piece. And uh, as is w with his third film, Magnolia, which is about people in the San Fernando Valley trying to find a connection with anything or anyone, yet again, surrogate fathers are there, the idea of loving someone who can't love you back, and just, you know, trying to find empathy in quite a cruel world, is that with these films there is this sort of showy surface to the work. Anderson, at this time, felt like a young filmmaker who felt unstoppable, first off, but also it comes across slightly panicked. Like he felt like, ah, this is going to be my only chance to do this, I might as well throw everything at it. So um, a lot of the times you can feel his fingerprints on his work. You can, particularly something like Boogie Nights with the opening shot going into the nightclub, where you end up meeting all the characters. And on the commentary for that film, Anderson says that he did that so that you could meet all the characters in one place and in one moment. Um, he employs a steady cam to do that, and people have criticised that shot, saying that no, you don't need to do it that way, but I don't quite get those complaints. I feel like if he has that ability to do it in such a stunning way, and such a difficult way as well, it's, it's, it's all the more impressive. I know it has that feel of like a young filmmaker pleading with people to take him seriously. But we should take him seriously. He's a fantastic filmmaker. And of course there's the obvious references there as well, particularly across the whole film. The idea of the rise and fall obviously has that Scorsese, um, Goodfellas, casino-type vibe. And then in Magnolia there's a couple of these sort of shots, one in particular which is a long steady cam shot going through a TV studio from the outside in, where you take an outsider where this child on a quiz show gets taken in by a producer to the green room and onto the studio, where it has this sort of alien quality to it, where there is just and constant movement. It, ha it reminds me a little bit of... Um, a little bit of a Busby Berkeley musical in a lot of ways, in that you have this sort of cast of like a thousand extras. It's not that many in Magnolia, but it, it feels like this relentless onrushing of people. What's interesting about the the visual style that he uses is that it's um, it does feel like someone that is um, trying to get as much done as possible and make sure that you're aware of his filmmaking abilities, which becomes all the more apparent when you see his later films, um, There Will Be Blood, The Master, and Inherent Vice, um, which all have a slightly more standoffish quality to it. Um, if you just take The Master, for example, yet again has the surrogate father quality to it, but um, the whole film just feels like it's just composed of static close-ups. Um, beautiful static close-ups, and, you know, doing those is very difficult, particularly when you're using a 70mm camera like what Anderson was using. And it has this sort of more comfortable feel to it. It feels like Anderson's totally in control of the film, whereas uh, the previous ones feel like he's kind of at the mercy of the film. There's an outlier between these 
six films. There's three later ones and there's three earlier ones, which is Punch Drunk Love, which might be my favourite film of his, which um, Anderson described as his attempt at an Adam Sandler movie. Uh, the film that stars Adam Sandler probably is Adam Sandler's best film. It's a very weird romantic comedy that has this Altman-type vibe to it. It has this laid-back sensibility with this highly strung central character, almost like a screwball comedy in a lot of ways. Basically, it's like a uh, slightly heightened but more realistic in an odd way screwball comedy about a man who falls in love with a girl, essentially. That's really it. Um, Adam Sandler's just so good in that film. Just a real ball of energy and just anger and hatred. And he's... he's just you have some absolute real sympathy for him. It's also an incredibly romantic film, um, which has one of my favourite lines in any romantic comedy. When Adam Sandler says to Emily Watson, who who plays the the love interest, uh, he says, "I love you so much. I want to smash your face in with a sledgehammer." And it's just really beautiful. It's a really really beautiful tender film, and. Uh, sometimes I do think it is my favourite film of Paul Thomas Anderson's and it's also, maybe because it's a slightly quirkier film of his, it has that feel of um, maybe like a Robert Altman film, something closer to like less of um, Nashville or The Player or Shortcuts, these sort of like big epic films of his but the more intimate one, something like Three Women, which is a fantastic film What's wrong with it, you know? The cowboy looked me about six years ago. It's coming back, though, no, Becky. It's not, no, it's not. It's over. It's dead, okay? I don't think you know what you're talking about. I do know what I'm talking about, right? And I, listen to me, and it sounds like your boss is at the stereo store saying the same thing. What? What? You have to get a new look. Why don't you get a new look? I have a look, okay? The look I have is just fine. What's your look? Chocolate love. All right? 100%. You don't have to lash out like that, Buck. I'm just trying to be your friend. The Left Field Show is a part of the Whole Fast Network, which is a network of podcasts all about many different things. You've got film, which is Left Field Show, which is what you're currently listening to. You've got one on South London, which is South London Hardcore, as hosted by Jack McEnroy and Steve Walsh. You've got one on football. Uh, that's Ford the Hamlet about Dulwich Hamlet Football Club what else have you got um, Process which is about comic books if you want to get on that uh, yeah and that's it I don't know there's other things on there just go figure it out yourself go to wholefestnetwork.com and you'll be able to figure it out you'll find something that you'll like um, oh Basement Tapes which is about music that's a good one uh, if you have a podcast yourself, you can submit it to wholefastnetwork.com slash submissions and try and get yourself on the network. Um, it's worth a go. Fairly easy to do. Just send it and uh, hopefully Jack will get back to you. God, I made a dog's dinner of that. Plugged, in I? Oh, well. That'll do. Anyway, wholefastnetwork.com for most of your podcasting needs. I hate most people. There are times when I... I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. I want to earn enough money I can... 
Get away from everyone. I see the worst in people, Henry. I don't need to look past seeing them to get all I need. I've built up my hatreds over the years, little by little. With these, um, people. <laughs> what ties them together, ties those two films together with Inherent Vice, in terms of America, is that it, this is Inherent Vice, which is about, uh, really about the hippie scene, and about this sort of key time in America. Really, all these films are about key points in America. As I said before, there is a very clear um, idea of Anderson, the early filmmaker, which was Sydney slash Hard Eight, uh, Boogie Nights, and Magnolia, with the middle film being Punch Drunk Love. And I did hint at it before, with the slightly later films being There Will Be Blood, The Master, and uh, Inherent Vice, that there is this clear thematic difference uh, in the work. Um not thematic, stylistic. There's less of the steady cam, obvious steady cam type shots and long going uh, through the going through a space um steady cam shots where like the opening of Boogie Nights it's more static and as I said, robust. It, it feels if I was to if I was to use one word to describe the style of filmmaking he uses now is robust. It's 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 very solid filmmaking, just purely on the surface level. But what's also interesting is that you still have the surrogate fathers thing, which is something that he always sorts sort of plays with. Uh, um, not an inherent vice, though. But what's interesting is that these last three films, as is a cliche, is a joking cliche for a lot of filmmakers, but three films are about America. They, they're they all about staples of the American culture. First one, There Will Be Blood being about oil, The Master being about religion, and Inherent Vice being about drugs. Um, if we go back to There Will Be Blood first, the, the obvious... He, do, he does an obvious play on the surrogate father thing where Previously, it was all about the son, the son finding the father and getting something from it and finding something from it. Whereas with this one, it's done from the father's point of view, exploiting the son for his own gains. His gains being that he becomes across more appealing to the public. Him being Daniel Plainview, maybe the greatest American, greatest character in American cinema and cinema in general, um, as played by Daniel Day Lewis. Um, he uses this son who he takes on as his own when it's actually the son of a former partner of his that's died um, to make him more appealing to the public. The idea of this being a single father bringing up his son as an oil man makes him more appealing. If it was just him on his own, he would look like a villain in a movie. But the fact that it is just him and his son and the fact that he has his son in the business with him at this young age, it makes it a more personal thing. That's another thing with this film, is that it plays with the idea of image. The image that you can 
get across to people and the one that you have to live up to and the idea of iconography the iconography of a father and son working together is a beautiful thing in american culture there's also the iconography of the church which plays hand in hand with this i mean daniel plainview looks like the devil in a lot of respects and he would be the the idea of some people's devil um an oil man at that time slightly evil um, intentions that he has where he'll just use the land up for his own personal gains he has the the flip side of him though as well which is uh, Eli is played by Paul Dana who is a local preacher who strikes a deal with him to invest in his church and so that he can get the workers on side with Daniel Plainview and as it comes to the very famous final scene, the I drink your milkshake scene, um, which as soon as the film came out, that became a cult scene. It became a um, a scene of great parody straight away. It was, but it's that just shows the value of it. That great scene where you realise that they are the same person. Uh, literally spelling it out for you, which in some films would be annoying, but here... It's done so beautifully. This, this, I drink you. The milkshake speech is so comedic and sinister, and then ultimately turns into something brutal as well. Just shows Anderson's control of cinema, basically, how he's able to manipulate us as a viewer. This your ship? I'm its commander, yes. Where's it going? New York City through the canal. You're a seaman. Yeah, how'd I get down here? You're acting aggressive because you drank too much alcohol. Yeah, I don't think so. You told me you were an able-bodied seaman and you were looking for work. I told you. Yeah, will you have any? Why all the skulking and sneaking? Work cannot be that difficult to come by. Well, it depends on when you're ready to go. You shouldn't work in your condition. No, I can work. You're aberrated. I'm not. Know what that means? No. You've wandered from the proper path, haven't you? Anyway, uh, moving on uh, from there with Blood to the Master, which is about religion, and yet again the idea of the surrogate father and son. One way you realise, there will be blood we realise from the father's point of view that he's exploiting his surrogate son for his own personal gains. With this one, we realise late on in the film that's well, not, we don't realise it, we always kind of know, but it becomes clear to us as a viewer that he's exploiting the the son um, for his own personal gains, the, the father being Philip Seymour Hoffman, playing this L. Ron Hubbard-style preacher man of his own religion, which has the scientific basis, uh, exploiting this drifter as played by Joaquin Phoenix. Um, what's so beautiful about 
film, though, is that you see that he's exploiting him, but he also has deep sympathy and love for him. Um, and it comes down to this really amazing scene at the end where they have to just split up, and it's like a romance movie, essentially, where they love each other and they have to split up. And um, for him to leave as a sort of parting gift, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman sings to him. This really powerful moment. This, yeah, again, it's a real beautiful moment, but it's almost like they're consummating their love for each other in that moment, and they will. They know they're not going to see each other again, but they'll always remember each other. Hey, Sancho. What's up, Doc? I know you have no case here. So if you're going to charge him, you bet him. Otherwise, you have to let him go. Mm, Sancho, remember who this is you're talking to? That's Bigfoot Bjornsson. Renaissance cop. I know he is. So, what's the beef here exactly? It just doesn't have much to do with your specialty, which I understand is marine law. We got plenty of crime on the high seas, Lieutenant. Okay, well, so far we have murder and kidnapping. We can work in pirates if it would make you more comfortable. Either way, it's high profile. Yeah, but um, given your history of harassment with my client, this will never make it to trial. No, I think we could probably take this all the way to trial, but with our luck, you know, the jury pool will be 99% hippie. Well, that's a change of venue to maybe like uh, Orange County. Not as many hippies down there, you know. So who you work for? Clients pay me for work, Doc. Clients pay me for work, Doc. What ties them together, ties those two films together with Inherent Vice in terms of America is that it, this is Inherent Vice, which is about, uh, really about the hippie scene and about this sort of key time in America. Really, all these films are about key points in American history. Of course, the oil rush, uh, World War Two, post-war World War Two, and 1960s hippie movement, the moment where people thought things were going to change for good and ended up not changing. Yet again, you could say it's about the government in a lot of ways, but I think that comes more from Pynchon, who has always gone to that sort of hippie conspiracy place which is so appealing what's interesting with Inherent Vice is that it very subtly tells you what the film's about it's about thinking what the fuck happened to, to this we had it in our hands, the hippie movement was the thing that was going to change everything and it just got ruined and what ruined it was heroin something that was brought into the country by, by the US government during Vietnam and put into specific places to ruin the image of certain people and to essentially kill them off and kill off the movement. It's one of... It's a film of immense melancholy, which is uh, transposed through a couple different things. The melancholy of the hippie movement, but also the melancholy of losing a girl that you love and wanting to have them back, and hopefully getting them back. That's what happens in the film. It's a very sort of screwy detective, private eye detective film. Something like The Big Sleep, you know, where Joaquin Phoenix plays this stoner version of Bogart, who has to look into the abduction of the boyfriend of his ex-girlfriend, who 
and she knows that the wife of her, her boyfriend and her lover have screwed over the husband and it has to do with Nazi bikers and a property development and a boat on the ocean called the Golden Fang and it's this trippy plot which doesn't really make any sense but it's so good to so entertaining and it you, you don't really care about the plot it's mainly just about what happens let's just I just want to see what happens next and in the end you, they get back together of course because that's how it has to go but you know that deep down there's not really that love for them with each other anymore because at that moment in time that they were together was different and that they're just trying to recreate it but they they can't because it's all gone now are you the great beast no no that's a, that's a, that's a policeman you know you're driving without your headlights ma'am but i i can see in the dark perhaps you shouldn't be driving then i'm, I'm gonna need to see all your ids please and what is this all about sir any gathering of three or more civilians is now considered a possible cult what it's charlie manson again criteria cri criteria includes reference to the book of revelation males with shoulder length hair or longer and endangerment through an attentive driving all of which y'all have been exhibiting oh i don't think so man listen this is a mercedes okay it's only painted one color y'all hang tight that should count for something that's a good point I'm actually going to have a heart attack. I'm actually, my heart is racing like a little... little. I do often uh, worry with this, that with Anderson's work, I do read into it too much. Um, because he is clearly the best American filmmaker working today. There is no one better than him. Uh, the reason why I say that is because I had this whole sort of thing about water in his work, in that particularly in, like, There Will Be Blood and... Uh, the Master and Inherent Vice, all the characters are trying to get towards the water because there's an element of freedom to it. And I did a bit of research into it and I found an interview where he actually talked about why there's so many shots of the ocean in his film. And he actually explains it. Here's what Anderson said about having so many shots of the ocean in his films. Uh, I love the sea, I love the ocean, I love to swim in the ocean. My wife, Maya, is convinced I was a fish in another life. It could just be that simple. But in movie terms, it looks good. You can't blow it, you don't have to light it, you just wait until a certain time of day, and it looks good. There's something about going to the beach with a film camera that feels good. So maybe ultimately I have read too much into the, his films. And that it is, his films are just as simple as that. There's something about going to the beach with a film camera that feels good. That's Perhaps that's what all he wants to do, is make something that feels good to him. The word I'm hearing is that Mickey Wolfman might not be as missing as we think. Like gone, but not gone. Man, you're going to love this. The rumor is that the Department of Justice is trying no, to... No, 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 no. Hey, yeah. Thank you. The word I'm hearing is that the Department of Justice is trying to broker a Vegas deal for him. Doesn't compute. Say again. Vegas Wolfman. FBI stuff. They need somebody else on the strip who's not Italian. You dig? Like Howard Hughes when he bought the Desert Inn. Howard Hughes was Italian? 
Alright, that's going to wrap it up this week for the Left Field Shouts. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, next week I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do on. I've only got two episodes left and I've got a couple of ideas that I want to maybe try and fit in there. But we'll see. I'm not going to not going to tell you what any of it is. I'm just going to drop it when uh, when it's finished. And hopefully you'll in, uh, enjoy it. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. This week's episode, that is. And uh, I hope you have a nice week. And I'll speak to you soon. Life, I finally felt that someone needed me. He needs me, he needs me, he needs me.